And Luke chapter 24 in God's Word today, and we'll read it together. As I continue talking to you about an Acts chapter 2 church. An Acts chapter 2 church. And then we begin in Luke chapter 24. And remember, of course, that Luke, a physician, wrote two books in the Bible. He wrote Luke, and then he wrote Acts. And so the same author, and we begin in chapter 24, the last few verses of Dr. Luke's message to us here, his gospel. And in verse 46, he is quoting the Lord Jesus' statement to the disciples. Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer the cross and to rise from the dead the third day. And of course, that's the gospel. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. There's the Luke version of the Great Commission, the beginning of it. That repentance and remission of sins should be preached in the name of Christ among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem. Wait in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Especially notice with me the phrase, till you be endued with power from on high. Now, go over to Dr. Luke's other book, the book of Acts, chapter 1, and he continues in much the same vein. He just picks up where he left off in Luke. And in Acts chapter 1, he repeats part of what we just read, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. And there's the phrase again, the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me. And if you'll skip down to verse number 8, but you shall receive power that after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And then you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea, the surrounding, surrounding region, and Samaria, a little further out, and then into the uttermost part of the earth. And Heavenly Father, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Do in the hearts of people what I cannot do. But, O oh Lord, fill us with compassion for the lost. Give us a heart for a world that is so desperately sick and evil today that no matter what other changes occur, we know that only you can heal it. And today we are desperate to see you come to our aid as a nation, as a church, as individual people. Lord, how we need you and impress that upon us. And as your disciples said to Jesus long ago, teach us to pray. I pray this in his name. 
Amen. You may be seated. So twice here in these short, this short account of verses, in Luke chapter 24, and then again in Acts chapter 1, Jesus told the disciples the same thing. Wait, wait. Go back to the city of Jerusalem. I'm getting ready to ascend up to heaven. You go back to the city of Jerusalem and you wait, tarry there until you be endued with power. And he was referring, of course, to the coming of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, previously, the night before of his crucifixion, Jesus Christ had said to the disciples, I'm going to send you another comforter. I will be leaving you shortly. And when I leave, I will send another comforter to you. And that comforter, of course, was and is the Holy Spirit. So the promise of the Father that Jesus is referring to here is the coming of the Holy Spirit, and it was fulfilled here early in the book of Acts. Now, what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit in your life? What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? What is the role of the Holy Spirit in my life today? Well, twofold for the big picture at least. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to take the place of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus left, and because Jesus is in heaven, and because he now is in a body, and he's still in that body, by the way, he is a visible, corporal, physical, he has a a corporal body, he can't be everywhere at one time. He could only be with a very minimal number of people at any one time. So the purpose of the Holy Spirit was that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, could actually be present in every single person and indwell every single person that was a believer. And so today, if you're a believer, the Scripture teaches, of course, that if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. If you're not a believer today, then you're not saved. The Holy Spirit indwelled you, came into your being at the moment of your salvation. And he took Christ's place. He is the presence of God in us today. Now, that's a whole subject in itself that I don't have time to go into, of course, in detail. But secondly, the purpose of the Holy Spirit was to take the place of Christ and to actually come and indwell each of us. And secondly, it is to empower us to do the Lord's work here on earth to empower us. And that's what he means when he says, you will be endued with power. You will be given power that you don't have in and of your own self. And that power will be my power through the Holy Spirit of God, the promise of the Father. So they waited then. They went back to Jerusalem and did what Jesus had commanded them to do. And if you look in verse number 14, It tells you what they did while they were there. They all continued with one accord. There's that word again, that phrase over and over and over. It comes through in Acts. One accord. They were in one accord, one accord, one accord, over and over and over because God cannot work when his people are not in unity and they're in accord. And so they continued in one accord in unity in prayer and supplication. And so there was this prayer meeting, 
And it occurred, we know that it went on for 10 days. And how do we know that? Well, we know that the Lord stayed here for 40 days. And we know that, you, so you start with 40. We know that the day of Pentecost comes on the day of first fruits. And we know that Jesus resurrected from the grave on the first fruits. And so you subtract the 10 from the 50 and you get, and the, get the 40. So it was a 10-day prayer meeting, 10 days. Did they pray the entire time? No. We know that among other things, they appointed a new apostle. We don't know what they did. It would be physically impossible to pray consistently for, or continuously for 10 days. So we know they didn't do that, but we know they prayed regularly and without ceasing on a continuous basis over and over and over. They went to prayer. And then on the 10th day, the day of Pentecost, a Jewish feast, the Holy Spirit came. And when the Holy Spirit came, he came with a visible demonstration so that nobody could miss it. He wanted to seal in their minds forever this day, the day of Pentecost. And he came. Now, many, most probably Bible scholars say this is the day the church began, but there's really no, the scripture doesn't say that. I believe the church already existed. I believe on this day the church was empowered. The church got its power. It got its, it got its strength and its purpose on this day. And so we have this visible demonstration so nobody will miss it. Everybody will be aware of what's happening. It was a mighty rushing wind. It must have sounded like a hurricane or a tornado or a severe storm. You've heard a rushing, rushing mighty wind, the wind going by your house, and it almost sounds like a thunder or a train. You can feel the power of the wind, a rushing mighty wind. And then it says there were tongues of fire that came, verse 3 of chapter 2, and these are cloven, divided, so it must have just sort of come down upon their heads and divided over their shoulders and body. So we have two visible signs that the Holy Spirit has come and their prayers have been answered. One, there is this rushing wind, this powerful wind. And secondly, there are these visible tongues of fire that rested upon them. And there's a third sign. The people spoke in tongues. Now, that's a big controversial subject, and I don't have time to go into it this morning. But the word tongues here in, uh, in, in Acts chapter 2, in verse 4, they began to speak with other tongues. It doesn't say an unknown tongue. Notice the Bible. Other tongues. Well, what would that mean? Well, it simply means other languages, because the word translated tongue is the Greek word glossolalia, which simply means a language. It has two meanings, either a known language, or it means the organ of speech in your mouth that I'm working hard with right now. A tongue is either in your mouth or it's a language. It never means in the Greek language uh, 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 an ecstatic utterance, as people would talk about today. Now, if you compare the Scripture, you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14, it talks about an unknown tongue. But this is not talking about that. 
This is talking about known languages, and if you don't think I'm right on it, the context is always our best interpreter. Look at verse 9, or verse 8, and they ask the question, how is it that we can all hear in our own tongue wherein we were born, our native language? And in verse 9 and 10, it lists 17 different languages and dialects that people were listening to them preach the gospel in. 17 known languages and dialects, and even they're listed for you so there will be absolutely no misunderstanding of what we're talking about here. Now, for this is my fourth week of speaking to you on the Acts 2 church, and I have talked to you about the vision of the Acts 2 church and how that when I was on the staff of a church, I began to study seriously the book of Acts chapter 2, And God began to form in my heart a vision, a dream of coming back to South Carolina and planting a church like the one I was in, but more importantly, like the one in Acts chapter 2. My whole goal was to to plant a church that would be an Acts chapter 2 church. And I've preached that almost as much as any subject through these many years that God has given me here. Now today, I want to talk to you about what they did in that church, and I, just, one, just one thing I want to focus on, and that is I want to talk to you about the importance of prayer to Acts chapter 2 church. The importance of prayer to an Acts chapter 2 church, because if we're going to have an Acts chapter 2 church, if that is our pattern, if that is our model, then prayer is absolutely, it is vital to what we're doing. We must catch that burden. In fact, churches measure themselves, I guess today, primarily by their membership. They measure themselves by their attendance. They measure themselves by their offering. They measure themselves by other, other metrics, I guess you would say. Honestly, I think if we took the Bible and nothing else and evaluated our church totally by Scripture, we would say that the measure of a church is not its membership or its attendance or its offering. I believe we would say it's how many people do we have that pray. You'll find out who your church is then. You can have a lot of people come to church for many different reasons. You really want to know who the true church is? It's the people that have a heart to pray, among other things. There might be others, but that's certainly one of them, is it not? The truest measure of the Florence Baptist Temple is not how many we had in Sunday school. It's how many stay in touch with God. How many pray? Why pray? Why do we even talk about prayer? Why is it so important to us today? And I think we ought to start with the most basic thing of all, and that is simply a definition of prayer. And here's something I hope you will write down there somewhere and retain. Keep it in your Bible or in your program there somewhere so that you can retain this. What is prayer? I like this definition. 
Prayer is God's ordained way of bringing his power to bear on our needs. Prayer is God's ordained way. It's God's idea, not mine or someone else's. Prayer is God's ordained way, his ordained method, if you will, of bringing power to bear on our needs as human beings. And when we pray, we honor God because it is God who told us to pray. And somebody said that prayer honors God, and then God honors prayer. Prayer honors God, and then God honors prayer. Prayer is God's appointed or ordained means of bringing his power to bear on our needs and on our problems in life. Now, number one today, in an Acts chapter 2 church, in an Acts chapter 2 church, prayer is fundamental It is not incidental. It is fundamental, not incidental. And by that, I simply mean this, that how many times have you ever been to some Christian gathering of some kind? (laughs) It might have been a birthday party. It might have been a church service. But somebody says, oh, we forgot to pray. (laughs) Let's pray. (laughs) And they kind of stick on a prayer at the the end of things, kind of like it's incidental. In the Acts 2 church and in the life of an Acts 2 Christian, prayer is not incidental. Prayer is fundamental. And the apostles here, as you read this passage, the apostles regarded prayer as their, as their top priority. Nothing came between them and meeting with God. Let me ask you a question. Will you listen to me? Look up here for just a minute. And everybody, I want you to answer this in your heart. What priority in the priorities of your life does prayer play? How important is prayer? Do you ever begin your day and say, you know, i got to pray here in a few minutes, and then the baby cries, and then it's time to eat breakfast, and it's time to go to work, and then... And before long, it gets pushed along, and it's 11 o'clock at night and time to go to bed. And you, oh, I didn't pray all day. If you don't do it early on, I have found in my life at least, I probably won't do it. I've got to begin the day with prayer very early on, or it gets pushed aside. What priority does prayer, communion with God, using God's ordained means to approach him and bring his power to bear on my life. What priority is that in your life today, my friend? Well, these apostles regarded as absolutely the number one priority. In Acts chapter 2, we see them have this 10-day prayer meeting, and then the Holy Spirit comes in answer to that prayer. And in Acts chapter 4, last week, we looked, they had persecution. And they were witnessing out here on the street. They healed this lame man, and they're hauled into jail. And after that, they're beaten before they are released. And what do they do the moment that they get free? Did they appeal to the authorities? Well, go over to chapter 4 with me for just a moment. Let me show you what they did. In chapter 4, in verse number 29, they said, Now, Lord, behold their threatenings, the authorities, the council, And grant unto thy servants that with all boldness we may speak thy word 
And then go down to verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And then they began to speak the word of God with boldness. And if you go down to verse 33, with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. You can see that they didn't stop, even though they had been thrown in jail and been beaten, that prayer was their priority. In chapter 6, go over there with me, and verse number 4, the There's a murmuring, a griping, a division, a complaint in the church because some of the people say we're being neglected. And the apostles then appointed seven men to assist them and to help them with the ministry needs of the church. And what's their reason for it in verse 4? So that we can give ourselves to prayer. Now stop, look, listen, think. They put prayer in a higher priority than even the ministry to people in the church. I mean, what do we have to give to people spiritually until we've spent some time with God? Think about that. So prayer was absolutely a priority for them. Well, where did they learn that? They learned that from Jesus. I did a little cursory study of the prayer and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ just flipping through the Gospels. And there are over 25 different times in the four Gospels, four short accounts of his life, 25 times plus, it talks about Jesus leaving the crowd of people, leaving the activities of life, and slipping off to pray to talk to his heavenly Father. In Mark 1 and 35, he rose a great while before day, and he went to a solitary place, And there he prayed. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. He continued all night in prayer to God. You remember the teaching of the Lord, and I think it's Matthew chapter 21. And uh, that's when he took the whip and he drove the money changers out of the temple for desecrating the, 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 the temple. And then he turned and he spoke and he said to them, You have made my father's house a den of thieves, but it's a house of, what did he call it? Prayer. The Lord's house, my father's house shall be known as what? A house of prayer. Prayer is to characterize the father's house, the church in our case, this place. Prayer is the priority, so said Jesus The temple in Jerusalem in which he was standing at at that time had this beautiful golden dome. Jesus didn't point up there and said, my father's house will be known for this valuable golden dome that is so beautiful that's known among the nations of the earth. Jesus didn't say, think of the architecture that went into this place and the years of building and how ornate and beautiful it is, and nothing has been spared for the glory of God. But he never mentioned the architecture. He didn't focus upon the building. He could have said, my father's house contains the Torah scrolls. They're down there in the basement and in the back room. The very words of God. Over here are the records, the genealogical records of the nation of Israel. 
And they tell every man, woman, boy, and girl in our nation their genealogy going all the way back in time to Moses. He didn't mention that. How valuable were those records to those Jews? Invaluable. The National Archives, he never mentioned it. The Father's House, he said he could have talked about the great choirs. We forget that they were the originators of choir music and that the Psalms were their, were their repertoire. But he never mentioned the music. He never mentioned the choir. He didn't mention any of the things that today we tend to take pride in. He didn't talk about what a great teacher, rabbi, so-and-so was. My father's house shall be characterized as a place of prayer. Above everything else, we go there and we meet God. We talk to him. The focus was not the building. It was not the program. It was not the people. It was a house of prayer. They believed that prayer, as I defined, was the way of obtaining things from God when you needed them. Charles Spurgeon said one of the most beautiful word pictures I think I've ever read about prayer. He says, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. The slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. And I think of my arm, and I don't know much about anatomy, but down in there somewhere are some nerves. And my brain tells the nerve, I want to move my arm. And the nerve activates and contracts the muscle, and so I move my arm. Prayer is the nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. It moves God. What a thought. In Acts chapter 12, turn over there. Let me show you something. It's almost funny. This is a funny account in one way. Peter has now gotten himself arrested. Herod has already begun an intense persecution and killed James, the brother of John, James and John. And now in Acts chapter 12, the church has met together. This Acts chapter 2 church is having prayer meetings. And down in verse number, and they've got Peter locked up in prison, and he's due to be executed tomorrow. And they got him chained to these soldiers. And in verse 5, Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing, unceasing prayer, of the church unto God, the subject, the object, for him. And the people were gathering, and they were praying, and uh, they were praying without stopping. Peter is going to be killed tomorrow. And uh, suddenly the Lord comes into that room and hears their prayers and answers this prayer. And the chains fall off, and he's escorted by an angel who blinds those soldiers, leads him outside, and sets him free and says, okay, go on your way, Peter. And so he goes to where the prayer meeting's going on. This is funny. And in verse 13, he knocks on the door. A little girl comes whose name is Rhoda, and she knew his voice, and she opened not the gate for gladness. She just left him standing at the door. She was so excited. She ran in and told everybody, Peter's standing out here. And they said to her, you're crazy. 
And she affirmed constantly that it was so. And then the people inside, typical Baptist, lots of faith in that building, huh? They said, it isn't so, it must be his angel. <laughs> and finally, they had to admit the truth that Peter, <laughs> Peter was standing at the door and uh, he was wanting in and God had answered their prayer. And, and that's just one illustration of the many needs over and over and over. Prayer is God's ordained way of bringing his power to bear on our need. In James chapter 4 and verse 2, you have not because you ask not. And when we don't pray, we miss God's blessing. We miss his power upon our lives and our families and our nation and our churches and our friends. Looking back now, I've chided myself privately many times through the years for my lack of faith and my struggle to pray consistently and like I know the Bible instructs me to pray. But through the years, I've learned more and more and more about prayer and I've my prayer file of messages back there is about yay thick. It's two or three file folders full. I've preached on it scores and scores, maybe hundreds of times. And of all the things in my Christian life, it's the thing I'm most conscious of, that if I don't pray, I can't have God's blessing. I can't have his hand. And now I can look back, and I used to think, someday, I, boy, I want to see direct answers to prayer. Because we pray, and if we don't have an answer in two days, well, we, we get the idea, well, the Lord hadn't answered my prayer. But there's a certain advantage to looking back over a long period of time. And you know what I can say to you? I have seen hundreds, hundreds of direct answers to prayer in the life of this church. Hundreds. I could just tell you story after story, and if I do, I won't have time. But I could tell you about when we were in that theater building when we first started. You, you cannot conceive how rough and how bad that situation that was. And I'd be so disappointed and so discouraged, and I wanted to quit every day, all day long. And we prayed. And one day... I found a piece of land to get out of there, and I came, and we're standing on it right now. And it was impossible, a little handful of people like that. We got ready to build this building. We needed about, I don't even remember how much it was, three or four or five million dollars, and that was a lot of money 30 years ago. And we had prayer for days, and then we went out and visited all our congregation. You know what? We burned the mortgage on this building within about two, two and a half years after we moved in. The money came. It came flooding in. I didn't realize this crowd had that much money or I'd have shaken them down a lot earlier than that. <laughs> but boy, millions of dollars came in to the glory of God. And this building was built almost on a cash basis. And I remember when we wanted to have our first revival with Junior Hill. And we invited the youth choir from the First Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida. And they came up here as the mid-90s. A youth choir. You know, what's a youth choir going to do for evangelism? 
Those kids sung and got out here and worked in this community, and Junior preached. I'd, we'd never had him here before. I'd heard him many times, but never had him in the church. After Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we baptized 120 people into the membership of this church. Do you know what had happened? For the two weeks before that, two weeks, we'd had people praying around the clock. Answers to prayer. Hundreds of them. I mean, I, I, I'll just quit because I'm just telling you, God still answers prayer. My wife and I could tell you some stories. You take me to the finest restaurant in town, buy me the biggest steak, and I'll tell them to you. Okay? What was the power, though, that they prayed for? What was it that they were praying for? You will be endued with power from on high. The Holy Spirit's going to come. What was the power that Jesus is always referring to? Look in Acts 1.8 again. You shall receive power. Well, what was the power? You know, the word is dunamis, from which we get dynamite, but it wasn't dynamite. What was the power? I can think of several things. One, it was the power to convict of sin and save when the gospel was presented. How many times have we preached the gospel and there's no response at all that anybody can see? But they preached the gospel that day. 3,000 people received Jesus Christ, according to chapter 2. It was the power to convince and convict people that Jesus Christ was the solution to their sin problem and the way to God and the way to eternal salvation. The second thing, it was the power of miracles. Everywhere they went, look in chapter 2 and verse 43. Everywhere they went, the, the apostles were doing these signs and wonders, the Bible says. Now, quickly, and I don't have time to deal with this, these were what I call evidential miracles. These are miracles to give evidence to the apostles, and that was a temporary gift 1 Corinthians 13 says that would cease, and it did cease. But it was the power of miracles at their time. And by the way, the Lord still does miracles. He just doesn't do them through apostles who have a special gift. And thirdly, it was the power to witness with boldness. Chapter 4 and verse 13, they marveled when they saw Peter and John because they could tell these men had God's power on their life, and they were fearless in their presentation of the gospel. It was, fourthly, the power to live a godly life. These men were so filled with the Spirit of God, and the people of that church, the whole, the whole con congregation of that church, so filled with the Spirit of God that people could look at them and see they're different. They have something in their heart, and it didn't turn anybody off. It wasn't being a nut, a, a fanatic of some kind. It was a reality, a love, a joy that attracted people to them everywhere they went. It was the power, number five, to overcome the forces of darkness because Satan began to attack that church with persecution. Ananias and Sapphira, the story there that we went over recently, and they lied to the Holy Spirit, and they came in, and Peter said to them in chapter 5, I think it's down in about verse number 3, he said, why has Satan... Why have you allowed Satan to fill your heart to lie to God? In other words, he acknowledged that Satan was making a play for the hearts of the Christian people in that church. 
And number six, it was the power to face persecution. The power to face obstacles and persecution. Go with me over to chapter seven. I want you to see this, and I've not referred to it previously. Here is Stephen, one of the deacons that were appointed in chapter five, or six rather. And they stoned Stephen. And as they stoned him, he is calling upon God and praying and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now look at the grace that God gave them. He kneeled down. And as the stones were falling on his body, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. He had the same grace that Jesus had on the cross. On the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And here Stephen said, forgive them. You talk about power in their life. That's the power of the Acts chapter 2 church. And by the way, it's still available today, but only if we pray. And so today, my challenge to us is if we want an Acts chapter 2 church, we have got to be very serious about prayer, very intentional about prayer, very informed about prayer. We have to pray knowledgeably and scripturally. You ever thought why we don't pray? The Bible says, Samuel said, God forgive me for ceasing to pray for your children, Israel. He said that neglect of prayer was a sin. We don't think of that like that at all. And and I know that when unconfessed sin is in my life, my appetite to spend time with God dries up. If you have no real zeal and interest in spending time with the Lord, check your life. In all probability, there is sin there that's impeding that. We don't pray. I know sometimes I haven't prayed because I was self-sufficient. Lord, I can do this. And I didn't even think about the Lord and, and my need for him. Sometimes I have failed in my prayer life because I've been too busy. Too busy even doing the Lord's work. Isn't that amazing? So busy doing the work of the Lord that you forget the Lord of the work. But the big reason we don't pray simply is a lack of faith. Turn in Hebrews, if you will, quickly. And I'm pressed for time. But Oh, I want you to see some of these things. The book of Hebrews... Chapter 11, known as the faith chapter of the Bible. And if you'll go down to verse 6, it says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, then the subject changes. Right in the middle of the verse, it goes to prayer. He that cometh to God. That's prayer, isn't it? If we approach God, first of all, we must believe that he is. So we pray because we believe there is a God. And secondly, we believe that the God that we believe in that exists, that he rewards us if we diligently, important word, diligently seek him. So you could say this. Do you know how much faith I have today? The measure of my faith is the measure of my prayer life. 
When I pray, I acknowledge two things. There is a God, and he rewards those who seek him. And last week in the message, then I challenged you to pray for three things. To pray that God would give you power to live a godly life. I hope you remembered my challenge this week and prayed for that. And if you didn't, begin today. Let's all as a church family pray for power to live a godly life. Secondly, let's all pray that God will give us a new boldness to witness, not just to invite people to church. Well, we do a great job inviting people to church, but the Bible didn't say go into all the world and invite people to church. It said to go into all the world and be witnesses of what has happened in your life that Jesus Christ has done for you. And thirdly, pray for our country. Pray for yourself that God will help you to live godly. Pray for boldness to witness that we'll be the salt and the light in this culture because it's desperate to see reality. And pray for our country, the moral decline, the threats to our safety, on and on and on. I don't have time to talk about it. And there's some specific things we're going to begin to do that I began this morning. I said, write down your cell phone, and I'm going to text you periodically and say, we need to pray. I'll send you a verse of scripture or a little short statement of some kind, but it's a reminder. I mean, if the Muslims can call people to prayer five times a day, can't the Christians send out a text and say, let's all go to prayer? Maybe we ought to do it six times a day. I'll send you the text. I want us to start praying together and making it absolutely a a priority here. Secondly, write down the date, November 5. That's the day before Friend Day. And it's the Saturday before the election. And we're going to have a day of prayer and fasting. And I want every member of this church, unless you are physically unable, I challenge you for the first time in many of your lives, to spend 24 hours from sundown on Friday night till sundown on Saturday and to fast and to pray, to come to this auditorium that the presence of God will be on this place in such an anointed way that you can feel it as you walk in the building out here. And then I want you to begin right now, today, to make you a prayer list Not of everybody's physical ailments and all that stuff, but I want you today to begin to pray by name for three or four or five people that are lost. Lord, move me with compassion and begin to pray for your lost friends, family members, work associates, people that you love. What greater expression of love is there towards somebody than that you remember to pray for them and call their name before God? Bow your head with me, please.